Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. That's miraculous if you all knew what we just went through to get a working setup where we could both hear each other with some semblance of decent quality. Um, Carl, who's also our audio and AV expert, is better known as a podcaster from the 30 Love podcast. So if you're not familiar with that one, you should definitely check out his podcast as well. Lots of interesting guests joining him there. This week, we have a lot of tennis to talk about, as usual, with five tour-level events wrapping up last week and heading into the two-week swing of Madrid and Rome, the clay court masters events and similarly prestigious tournaments on the women's side. We're going to start with talking about the men, and I want to start with the Estoril final. Um, Not quite the highest profile of three finals, but um, Carl and I, I think, both have some thoughts about Francis Tiafo, who was the losing finalist to Jao Souza, uh, the Portuguese in Portugal. Um, but let's start talking about uh, about Tiafo. I, I was a bit surprised by his run. I believe we spoke last week about how uh, the Americans don't make too much of a showing on the European clay, and Tennis Sandgren was breaking that trend. But but Tiafo showed up a week ahead of the Masters events and did very well. Uh, Carl, I, I believe we've both seen Tiafo a few times. You can confirm. I think you saw him at a challenger a couple of years ago. Um, most of his results have come on hard courts. Are you surprised that he was able to to get some good results with his game on clay, a surface that he's probably not super familiar with? No, I'm not surprised. I think results are the rewards that come to players, especially American players, who actually bother to show up and play on the surface. And I think partly that's a reflection of it's not as different as we think, especially from slow hard courts like Miami, where everyone just played. Um, and, and also, this is a week where results were available for people, where the, the fields were not all that, all that tough or all that impressive. So showing up was, was a lot of the work. I mean, Tiafo did beat Pablo Carreño Busta, who's been in the top 10, is, is ranked around there, and is tough on clay. And, and that was a really impressive win. But his other wins were were pretty ordinary, and he, he could have gone all the way through the tournament and won it without a, a win anywhere near as big as the Carreño Busta win in the semifinals. And he had played on clay before. He just played on the clay tournament that American men are repeatedly showing themselves willing to show up to, and that, that's the one in Houston. But that's still clay. And, yeah, I just think that a lot of the guys around Tiafo's age could learn from his example that maybe not only could they get some good results if they bother showing up during the clay season when, when all the points and, and dollars are available in in Europe, but that the results might actually translate into some good results for them on hard courts, that these are not completely alien surfaces. Yeah, I would, I would agree. It seems like, especially these days, um, if surfaces have um, drifted towards the center a little bit, we have faster clay, especially at the altitude in Madrid. And you brought up the example of Houston, which is a bit problematic because Houston, yes, we've had plenty of American success there, uh, partly just because the the tournament is dominated by Americans, uh, just in terms of who shows up in the first place. 
but there's also this this challenger swing in the American Southeast in Florida uh, that determines the USDA's French Open wild card. I don't remember if Tiafo won that wild card last year, but he had some success there. I mean, the, the memorable moment of Tiafo's challenger swing last year was the the it can't be that good moment in Sarasota where there were some <laughs> adults having non tennis related fun um, audibly on court. So. If that was his highlight of the season, it's not the best sign for his tennis. But but he did play on that clay. The, the point I wanted to make, though, about those surfaces, though, is especially on the, at those challengers, that's not real European dirt. That's, that's green clay, which a lot of players complain about. I mean, Victoria Azarenka gave a press conference yesterday where you could tell she was thrilled to be back in Europe because she repeatedly said how thrilled she was to be back in Europe, out of the U.S., back to what she was familiar with and back on real clay courts. And you wonder whether there are players who maybe don't get a lot of training on clay in the first place. And when they do play on clay, it's on the fake stuff. And maybe that doesn't translate as well. I mean, do you think, do you think that's an issue or is that something that just gets overblown by let's, let's say clay snobs like Victoria Azarenka? Yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat overblown. We've certainly seen players have success in Charleston and then on the European clay. And in terms of the challenger swing, those are not the players who are likely to be dominating or or even competing really at the tour level events. Those are guys who need the challenger points. And by the way, Tiafo was comfortably inside the cutoff for the French Open last year, uh, but he just you know was still playing a lot of American challengers. Um, and and not only did he win that that tournament. But he went on to win his next tournament on clay in Aix-en-Provence, is, is my poor attempt at pronouncing that, that French town's name, French city's name. So, and then he played the Bordeaux Challenger the week after. So he was, he was playing uh, challengers in Europe because his, his ranking was in that weird space where he was comfortably inside the French Open cutoff but couldn't make it into the Masters. So he'd already shown some willingness to show up and play on the European clay. I, I think the bigger obstacle to the type of clay is just the amount of time spent on clay and the attitude. I mean, I remember seeing Sam Querrey kind of struggle through a first round win at the French Open a few years ago and then go into his press conference. And he seemed somewhat baffled that he'd won, like he had no expectation of winning any matches. And also like he was now deciding, hey, you know, maybe I'm going to actually now take this seriously and try to win some more matches, as in his attitude before that match was, I'm going to show up in Paris because I've got to enjoy what I can about the experience, lose my first round match, and then get ready on the clay. Like that's, that was the implication, I felt. Um, and, and sometimes a guy can be as good as Query and get a matchup as good as he had and went around, but it's not because they go into it with any particular plan to do so, or even an apparent desire to do so, as if every additional match on European clay is is a downside and not an opportunity. Yeah, it is a weird attitude for people who play professional tennis for 10 months of the year and just write off, to, I guess it's two, two and a half of those months when... We can talk all we want about clay being kind of sidelined compared to where it was maybe 30 years ago, but it's still a huge part of the calendar. I mean, we've got three Masters events and a slam, lots of little tournaments, as you say, Carl, that without really high-level competition. So there's points to be had, as Francis Tiapo can tell you. So it, it yeah, is and, odd. And, you know, we, we often talk about it as two and a half months, and I think that even undersells it because 
there are lots of long breaks in the calendar, maybe not complete breaks, but breaks between any big events. There's breaks at the end of the season. And then you also have clay opportunities elsewhere. Like the American guys tend to like to go to South America for hardcore events. Well, there's a lot of clay points to be had there outside of the the two and a half month European clay season. So, so it's really a, a lot of tennis to to ignore, not to mention that there is at least a, a school of thought now in tennis of you should train mainly on clay because that'll make you better on all surfaces, including hard courts. Yeah, and when we're looking at players that for whom we know what, what surface they trained on, I mean, we can say with some certainty that, that most of the American top players grew up playing on a hard court and are comfortable there. But we can also say for a lot of Europeans, obviously the Spaniards, but also some some players from countries that aren't known as so clay-specific, that they did grow up playing on clay courts. Um, we know Roger Federer was comfortable on clay from an early age, even if he didn't end up being anything like a clay specialist. And you, aside from people who develop a, a very a very specific kind of game style, most people are able to take clay court success and turn it into hard court success as well. I mean, if if Diego Schwartzman can do it with his game style and his size, then I would say anybody can do it unless they're just absolutely trying not to or they just have an attitude about hard courts or something. So that's definitely true. It, I would love to know more about uh, about how players develop depending on what they play on as, as youngsters. And that extends to the green clay, red clay divide because it does seem like a small thing. And I agree with you, Carl, that it gets overblown a little bit, especially by people who grow up on red clay and maybe have a bit of an attitude about different surfaces. But at the same time, I can say pretty confidently it is different. And for players who are competing at this level and hit shots with such precision and and so on, that it will make a difference. And if we if we knew more about exactly how players were training at age eight or age twelve or something, we might have some interesting insight into where they'll be as twenty or twenty five or thirty year olds. And I, I just wonder how much of an effect that has. Yeah, and and the, and also how that effect is distributed by surface I you know I, the example that always comes to mind and always makes me laugh is Andy Murray going to to train in Spain on clay when he was young and he became he had he, he developed a, a great style on clay a great style for clay that worked really well for him on hard courts and he was kind of he wasn't bad because he's Andy Murray he was great but he was way way worse on clay than on hard courts until a few years ago but that training in Spain had to have contributed to him being, you know, one of the best defenders and retrievers and endurance athletes the sport has ever seen on hard courts. Another example that comes to mind, I was impressed when I met also at the French Open a few years ago, Jared Donaldson. Uh, he's still quite young. He was younger then and he was fighting through qualifying in Roland Garros and he ended up losing in the third round of qualifying, but it was still pretty impressive for a teenager, let alone an American teenager. And he had gone to South America to train on clay and his results on clay at the tour level are kind of crap. He's two and seven. He has played two matches so far on clay. Like we were giving Tiafo a lot of props because he actually reached a final, but Donaldson got to Europe a lot earlier. He played the Monte Carlo masters and Barcelona. He lost his only matches at each tournament. He won a total of 10 games in those two matches He's two and seven overall. 
He's lost his last four. But hey, he's actually pretty good for his age overall, and most of those results are on hard courts. So maybe there's something to this play on clay, and you will get results on hard courts, which are still the dominant surface on tour. Yeah, that's an interesting take on Donaldson. And when you brought him up, I was curious where you're going to go with that because he, he has gotten a lot of press for being the American who didn't train in the U.S. You know, there's, there's a lot of great coaches and great training and, and development opportunities in the U.S., but as we've been saying, they're not on clay courts. And if you believe in training on clay, then you, you pretty much have to go somewhere else. And that's a really big step for someone to take as, I don't know how old he was, maybe a 14-year-old. And Donaldson and his family did that. And it's an interesting test. I mean, another interesting test actually is Kasparud, who um, mm. doesn't have a lot of training opportunities in Norway, both because of the climate and because there's just not a lot of great tennis players, not, not a lot of, of really high-level coaching. So he and his family went to Spain. And he has become what looks like more of a clay quarter. I mean, he loves Nadal. He... he he plays defensively, tons of topspin. He looks like a clay court player. And I mean, I don't think that's what you'd see if you did a survey of, of good but not professional level players in Norway because that's, you know, there's not a lot of clay courts to do it on. So he's another example then. We'll, we'll see whether he develops into a credible player on all surfaces. But maybe, maybe that's the overall point then, Carl, that, that the cl- you do need the clay as a youngster to develop certain skills I mean, maybe we can't pinpoint exactly what those are uh, but maybe it's just better to learn tactics and how to deal with longer points even if you're going to turn into Sam Query and not play a lot of long points mm-hmm. but then later on as you physically develop we see how tall how strong you get which which shots are going to become world-class and which are going to become more liabilities that's going to determine whether you are a clay court specialist or a hard court specialist. And maybe that step has nothing to do with what you grew up on, but what you grew up on might prove to be a handicap if it is hard courts, basically. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and, and it, you know, it could be that we're really also talking about types of hard courts. Like, I don't know a ton about what are the types of hard courts that, um, that American players train on. I hope that at the new big USTA training facility, there's a wide range of hard courts because hard courts come in an infinite variety of flavors. You can tune lots of continuous variables when setting them up. And if you're going to have as many courts as that facility does, you ought to have some that play like Miami and some that play like Bercy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I would be surprised, actually, if any facilities are doing that, partly just because it's so much cheaper and easier to have somebody come in and, and resurface your 30 courts or whatever and do them all exactly the same way. Uh, but instead, if you're going to get that range of experience, you have to travel and play tournaments when you'd think the value of that experience would be something else, like tactical and getting used to different opponents without also having to get used to different types of surfaces. But yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, another player I wanted to talk about in the same context as, as Tiafo and, and his surface changing issues oh, is Hyung- Jeff, just before we jump yep. around, you know, there is sort of a, a constant Tiafo topic. Should we at least address it? Like his, his sort of technical style? Yeah, we can talk more Tiafo. Um, yeah, he, he's got a really unorthodox game. What, what do you have in mind, Carl? Well, I would rather listen to you on this one than talk because I have a one of the most unorthodox games of anyone I've ever played against I've seen. Uh, you don't. You have a really nice game. So 
it, it's hard for me to say, but I've heard people say that things like his take back on his serve and on his ground strokes is really different. I think the, the way, sort of the, the distance of the racket face from his body on the backhand is also unusual, but I, I'm, I'm somewhat faking here sounding like a technical tennis expert when I'm sort of an expert in how to play without technique. Well, I, I think the two things that are relevant here is one is repeatability, which you hear coaches talk about a lot. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the, the relevant thing here for Tiafo's serve, which is, is a little funky. Um, I, I, didn't, I, I did watch the final yesterday, but I wasn't thinking about this uh, when watching it. So I, I can't say a lot about that, but that's always the big question. It, it, when you see someone like Grigor Dimitrov as a 15-year-old serve like Federer, I think that's what makes coaches and commentators so excited. Is one, of, one of the many impressive things about Federer's serve is that it is virtually identical from one to the next. And when you look at the very best players, the very best servers, they have a, a simple... Uh, serve without a lot of excessive moving parts and it looks exactly the same every time and when you see Dimitrov come along at age 15 or whatever and matching that then like holy crap that's a huge piece of the puzzle that this kid has figured out very early on and Tiafo is kind of the extreme opposite of that I mean, his serve works pretty well he gets some free points off of it he hits, he hits it pretty hard he seems to be able to vary his um, his deliveries a bit so so the effect is good but having those excessive moving pieces is it, it makes you wonder if it's going to be able to stay that way um, whether he's going to be able to go out for a five set match and just serve consistently in the way that a Federer can and do you think that's a data-driven concern, or is that more a traditional coaches have that concern but aren't entirely able to justify why? Well, I th- uh, it's definitely a traditional coach's concern. The question is whether it's also data-driven, and I'm not sure what the data is uh, that we I mean, here Hawkeye that. could be helpful because they should have data on like ball toss, for instance, and, and body position. I'm not sure body position. Yes, I'm not. I'm not sure about ball toss. I'll have to to look into that. Um, but yeah, one, one project that I would love to do, and it's one of those things that's probably years away on my list. But the the idea is if if you were doing um, if if you were doing something with uh, computer vision, and let's say you just had an, an image of every serve that a player hit in a match. So let's say you have a hundred serves then it's pretty straightforward by computer vision standards to recognize what the serve is, what the highest point in the ball toss is, and and maybe just the outline of the player at that point, assuming that the camera angle is steady and all that stuff. And it, it would take some, some complicated algorithmic work that's probably beyond my ability level, but it seems possible to, to take those snap, snapshots of the toss at its highest point or the service motion at its... At, at some specific point and see how consistent it is. And maybe you could see where players are, are failing to repeat their motion, or maybe you could see where players are, maybe they're showing their tells and giving away to their opponent which direction they'll go mm-hmm. or how much spin they'll hit it with, something like that. It seems like that's something that's within the range of, of 2018 technology, unlike, say, repeatable podcast audio quality. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. Maybe people are working on that no idea, but I think that's what you need to do to have a data-driven opinion on this, and I don't know if anybody has. If they have, I don't know what their what their conclusions are, so we can't really have a data-driven conversation there, but it seems very plausible. I mean, that, that seems like something that comes up 
regularly in other sports that you need to have simple repeatable motions. And what that relates to is the other thing you brought up, which is just the, um, I forget how you put it, Carl, but the issue is just getting your racket back in a fairly compact way. So if, if you're running around the court and you're going to try to hit a forehand, then you want the backswing to be not just repeatable, but also compact. So you're, you don't have to go through this whole motion while you're running or while you're taking adjustment steps. And I, I, this is a pretty big leap, but I, I really noticed this watching a Danielle Rose Collins match last month where she has a really big loopy backswing. And normally it works, but when you see that, those players tend to miss opportunities or they, they don't hit the ball as squarely as often as other players do because as soon as you start that backswing, even if you can make adjustments later on, you start to commit to where the ball is going to be or where the contact point is going to be. And... There's only so much adjust, so many adjustments you can make. But other players, like a subject of last week's podcast, Adrian Manorino, have a really short, quick backswing and setup for a shot, and they're able to make solid contact, I think, more consistently. Tiafo is more on the Daniel Rose Collins side of this conversation, where he has a bit of an unusual backswing. It's a it's a pretty long process. And I mean, he's a pro. He plays. He plays really well. He hits great shots. So you don't see when it goes wrong very often. But I think it's safe to say that sometimes it does, or sometimes he isn't able to hit the best possible shot because he has to start committing just a split second before some, uh, uh, other players would. So that that's the concern. Uh, there's lots of players out there who have unorthodox serves or forehands or backhands and have been able to overcome it um, just because they're that good or because it doesn't end up mattering that much. And that's really the, always the question with someone like Tiafo is if you took all the, let's say you're looking at 16-year-old prospects, if you took all the 16-year-old prospects with unorthodox forehands, then you probably wouldn't want to bet on them as a group to be your future top 50. But that doesn't mean that one of them can't overcome that and maybe improve it, maybe just have a good enough serve that it doesn't matter or something and that that's a tough question when looking at the develop, developmental process and so far I mean Tiafo has defied a lot of skeptics including me to some extent and he's he's made this final he's on the cusp of the top 50 he's still awfully young for what he's accomplished so far so he seems to be able to overcome it the question is if it becomes a, a roadblock at some point and we'll just have to wait and see about that yeah it's on the one hand, it feels premature because he's 20. On the other hand, he's played a lot of tennis to get to this point, not just because you start young, but because he is already, well, where is he? He's, he's got to be around the top 50 now with this final this week. Yeah, just um, out, of the, out of the top 50. And, you know, he's, he's done things like take a not a suboptimal but still impressive Roger Federer to five sets at the U.S. Open. He won Delray. Earlier this year, he took Kevin Anderson to a third set at a match I attended at the New York Open earlier this year. Uh, he's got he's got a lot going for him. Uh, I one I also tried to be a little data driven with this and look at his serve stats in terms of like ace percentage and percentage of first serves in and winning percentage on first serves, and his age twenty numbers on all three of those are pretty similar to Federer's at that age. Um, his serve for a 6'2 guy is probably a bigger weapon than average. So sometimes the, the breakdown in a case like that could be because someone is, is trying to fiddle with it because they, they do think it's going to eventually break down. 
and maybe they could actually teach him a new way that is going to, in the long term, be better for him. But that transition process can be brutal. Yeah, and that's the tough thing with any pro is I think there are lots of cases where a player or his coach realizes that there is an issue that needs to be resolved, but with a 10-month calendar uh, when you you can go to a tournament every week, then there's not a lot of time to to rebuild something. And in some cases, that means it just kind of gets let go and it never gets rebuilt. And that could be another question for Tiafo is whether he, he does end up making changes, but again, maybe it will turn out that he doesn't need to. Compared to his age group, he's in great shape right now, and he's proving that he's more versatile with regard to surfaces than a lot of people in his age group and from his home country are. So uh, there's a lot of potential there. He's he's something like 10, or fewer than 10, but in the live rankings even, he's 10 ranking points, ranking spots from being number four American as a 20-year-old. And he's not, you know, the top three are not, like, in the top five of the rankings. So he's already not far from being the best or one of the best Americans, and he's 20 years old. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Um, now, I didn't mean to talk about Tiafo and men in general for quite this long, so let's switch over for just a short bit about uh, about other stuff on the men's calendar. One of the other tournaments this last week was in Munich, and Alexander Zverev was the top seed. He was the huge favorite. I think that my my model had him at some close to sixty percent to win the tournament, even before the tournament started, and he went on to win it. I think he lost only one set, and that was in the his first match, the second round against Yannick Kampmann. But then he went on to to play pretty routine matches against Hyung Chung in the semifinals, and then Cole Schreiber in the final. And it's an interesting tale of, of two players there between Chung and Zverev, both young, lots of potential. Um, but Zverev is a lot more comfortable on clay. He, he grew up, another one of these guys who grew up playing a lot on clay, even if his game is a bit more of a, a, a hard court. I, I hesitate to say that. He, his serve makes it possible for him to have a big hard court game. He, he tends to play very defensively, as we discussed last week. So that's more of a clay court tactic. But Chung is someone you might think of as having a lot of clay court potential. He's really fast. Um, he's, he, he's got a pretty compact game. So he can adjust to, to if he bounces, he can, he can make last minute adjustments. But having grown up in Korea, playing a lot of Asian challengers um, as he climbed the rankings, he hasn't played a lot on clay. And I was specifically watching for that when I watched that semifinal and didn't see a lot of evidence of Chung struggling with the surface. I mean, he didn't play great and he didn't challenge Vera very much. I mean, he broke him a few times, but he got broken a lot more in return. So I, I didn't really see any clear conclusions there. But an interesting uh, reference point for Chung is a much bigger Asian name in Kei Nishikori. And Carl, before we started recording, you, you brought up Nishikori in that very context. And Nishikori also probably started his career both training and climbing the rankings, playing mostly on hard courts. But he turned out to be a very, very good clay court player, maybe one of the best in the game. I mean, do you think that's that's something that's a, that's a status that Hyung Chung could reach as well, Carl? I think this guy's the limit for Chung. I think he, he can do whatever he sets his mind to. I'm not surprised he's a quick study if it is true that he hasn't played much on clay. And I think, as you point out, his game transfers well to clay. So I think once you can sort of figure out the footwork, uh, that, that kind of game can, can be just transplanted onto the surface 
willy-nilly. He still risks on any surface, including Clay, just being out hit by the biggest hitters in the game. But he's also quite young and could, I mean, as is Zverev. Zverev, you know, could could be one of the all-time greats by the pace he's on right now. But I, I could see Chung uh, becoming one of the top threats on Clay because I think he could be one of the top threats on every surface. I was surprised that it, how how confidently you answered that question with a, a, a huge bit of praise for Chung. I mean, I, I like him as well, but I, I may be a little bit more careful about it. And which I don't is think... right. I mean, I, I am projecting one potential career path that doesn't account for injuries, which he suffered during the Australian Open and so on. It was probably a little too optimistic. Well, and that, that's a whole other issue is, like you say, the injuries brought him down in the Australian Open, and he's had some uh, some other health concerns as well. I think just in the last couple of years, he, had a, he was out for several months for an injury that I don't remember the nature of. But uh, I don't believe we talked about him much, if at all, after the Australian Open, maybe because we weren't recording very many episodes. But what do you like so much, Carl? What what makes you think this best case scenario for Chung is? I mean, it, it sounds like you're thinking of his, him as potentially a number one or like a top three kind of guy. I mean, do I have that right? You do. Uh, I mean, I think it's partly just from looking at his results from the next gen finals through now and how consistently he's gone deep. But you and I have talked before about the sort of perils of making lots of quarterfinals instead of making w- winning one title and losing in some first rounders. And that the guy who makes a bunch of quarterfinals is probably better overall and playing better tennis and winning more matches, but is that's not yet being reflected in the rankings. And the next gen finals is an extre- extreme version of that because you get no ranking points for that, uh, which I understand, but which makes it a little funny because Chung won all five matches playing some of the top future stars and he's one of the older among them but but still really impressive performance there and you know since then round of 16 quarterfinal semifinal at the australian open quarter 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 semi in munich um that's really consistent especially given that he did suffer an injury at the australian open had some really nice wins knocked out Djokovic in straight sets at the australian open um he's He's a really smart, versatile player. He has a lot of options. Uh, his serve is not going to be a giant strength, but he manages it well. And I think he does pretty much everything else in the game well. He's good from both sides. But the thing I really look for in, in a younger player is is like tactics and decision making. And I think he's one of the best there. But yeah, I, Nishikori, I, I, can, I could say all that about Nishikori. And Nishikori could have been top three and maybe still could be, but injuries have have made it tough. So Chung having some injury problems does not bode well. Yeah, definitely. And and I would say that you're right to mention Nishikori as a cautionary tale. But on the other hand, if Nishikori's results when he's healthy and his, his overall demonstrated skill level, you know, that's got to be one of the best possible outcomes for Chung or for any player. I mean, Nishikori, if you could somehow take away the injuries, then he is a perennial top five type guy. And I mean, hopefully we'll, we'll see that in practice for a few injury-free years. But even if not, I mean, the, the, the talent is, a, is a, good, a good comparable to have for somebody like Chung who's making his way up in the game. And Nishikori was competing with Djokovic-Murray at all, and I don't think Chung will be. So that's partly why I sounded so optimistic for him. 
yeah, that helps a lot. And there's reasons to, to be a little bit careful with projections about Zverev. I mean, he, he's the best in his generation, but I'm not sure that translates into being a, a, a to being in the best ever conversation unless he starts winning more matches at slams. I mean, he, he's, yes, he's lost a lot of matches to, to top players or guys that he lost to when he was not quite at this level yet, but he's also lost his share of matches that he shouldn't be losing. So... He'll have to change that if he's going to put himself in that in that best possible outcome um, that that you gave him in passing. I mean, so uh, much of this depends on whether his performance at this age translates into uh, performance long term. Like, if you do the comparison to Roger Federer, with greatest of all time, at least based on current results then Zverev at just turning 21 is looking pretty good yeah well and especially when if you make some kind of adjustment for what the definition of young is at any given time that's one of the hardest things about actually quantifying this sort of stuff is even just if you take the objective numerical age for Zverev he's still done some amazing things and I think I, I one of my most retweeted comments on Twitter was uh, when he made his first final. It put him in something like, it put him right in the, the middle of the, the three of the top four, um, Federer, Nadal, and, and Djokovic, in terms of when he'd done it. And on top of that, he's he's doing this in an era where, for some reason or another, young players aren't performing as well in general, uh, certainly compared to 30 years ago, but even compared to when when Federer was coming up. So if Zverev follows Federer's career path year by year, uh, that's impressive. But in a way, it's even more impressive than it was for Federer. I mean, that's a lot to ask because it's he's coming up on a couple of years where he's going to have to almost not lose any matches to continue to, to, to equal Federer's record. But he's doing it without people of his same age cohort um, really giving him much of a challenge. And and that's, that, that's something that, that Federer had a very different experience with. So... Can I I give you a quick stat? Yeah, definitely. So Federer at this point, at this same age of where Zverev is now, was 3-6 and in ATP finals. His best win was over Murat Safin. And he had one Masters, two Masters finals, he won one. Zverev, 7-4, and uh, his best wins in finals are Federer and Djokovic and Vavrinka. And he has had three Masters finals, and he's won two of them. Uh, that's pretty good. It, it and it, looks... and that, by the way, ignores the best of five problem, but Federer was not so hot in best of fives at that point. His win against Sampras that everyone remembers was like his one big win by this age. Right. Yep. And I, I, don't, I don't make too much about the best of five finals issue. I mean, so few of them actually went to five sets, and even fewer of them changed the outcome as, as far as we know in the sense that someone came back from down two sets to love or down two yeah. sets to one um, so for a discussion like this I would say that's barely an issue at all um, that's really interesting uh, and and it's based on the evidence we have in front of us now it looks like Zverev is going to is going to have a next three to five years with a, a lower level of competition than Federer had at least a couple years down the road from that point you're talking about Oh, Jeff, that's controversial. A lot of Rafa Djokovic fans are going to say, look from 2002 to 2005 and see how clear the field was for Roger. 
Yeah, I, I know they will. Um, <laughs> Maybe you were trolling them. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, 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 not, I'm not trolling anybody, and I'm even... Uh, my instinct is still always Federer as the greatest of all time, but the, the more I... The more I look into specific issues comparing Federer and Nadal, the more it's it, the harder it is to keep Nadal um, as sort of a provisional number two. Um, one case being just the outrageous stuff he's done on on at the big clay court tournaments. Uh, maybe we'll see more of that this month as well. But we are Jeff, well. What if there were three Grassmasters? Okay, let's move on. Sorry. What if there if if, if there were three Grassmasters, then two of them would be rained out every year. There's, <laughs> they would be pretty much the same as it is now. Um, but I didn't expect to get past the thirty-five minute mark without talking about any women except for Danielle Rose Collins. So let's shift to what was actually our the, the first item on our outline, which is some women and their clay court preferences. Um, the, the main name I wanted to talk about was Kiki Burtons, who is one of the better clay court players on the women's tour. But first I want to talk about a few people with relevance to this past week and some general things about the WTA schedule. So last week there were two events in Europe or nearby. We, in Prague, Petra Kvitova won there, beating Mihaela Buzarnescu in the final. And in Rabat, Elise Mertens won her third title of the year. Three titles for Elise Mertens um, over Isla Tomljanovic, who's a bit interesting on her own, but I think we're going to have to give a Tomljanovic discussion a pass for this week. But we can talk about Buzarnescu and Mertens as players in a moment, but the awkward thing about this is something we talked about 52 weeks ago on this podcast, maybe 20 episodes or so ago, that they played these finals on Saturday. Um, and both of them, well, actually three of them, not Tomljanovic, since I don't, th- I don't think she qualified for the main draw, but Kvitova, Buzarnescu, and Mertens all had to play their first round matches in Madrid uh, yesterday on Sunday. So final on Saturday, they have to play a first round match on Sunday, and it went well for Kvitova. Uh, Mertens got through it as well, and Buzarnescu lost to Sharapova, who she might have lost to anyway. So it's not clear that the Saturday to Sunday turnaround actually is holding these ladies back but it certainly can't be helping them any and what if they spend the flight listening to this podcast they're all tactically you know loaded up i think the frustration of complaining about last week's audio quality might (laughs) or what if if someone reclined too far into their lap i mean i don't know who would complain about that yeah, there's there's a lot of things that could frustrate them with the, the whole airport process. And actually, I, I'm I'm joking, but there's a serious point being made there that there's I think there is more stress involved in um, just physically getting yourself to a different country than Absolutely. than someone should be expected to handle between two high stakes matches in 24 hours. Mental and physical stress, just the, the all the physical demands of flying too. Yeah, um, absolutely. Even if it is a distance as short as Rabat to Madrid. But we talked about this 52 weeks ago. Um, we Apparently we didn't influence the calendar despite it. <laughs> Strangely enough, no, the WTA did not make any last minute changes to the calendar. Um, we were speculating about how that the, the quick turnaround had a negative effect on the fields in Rabat and Prague. And someone on Twitter took us to task for the fact that uh, these two tournaments actually have pretty good fields for WTA internationals. And that is true. I don't think it's an entirely fair comparison because a lot of the internationals are really far out of the way, like the Kuala Lumpur and Quebec City and just Bogota, Monterey. 
things that you'd have to make special trips for. Whereas these two tournaments are on the right continent or very close. They're on the right surface. They're perfect warm-ups for a very big tournament. So it seems to me that if you if you are serious about winning Madrid or competing well in Madrid and you're not one of these top handful of players who doesn't need the warm-up, you would play Prague or Rabat, especially Prague, um, as Kvitova did. But... Not a lot of people do. It's a strong field for an international, but not a very strong field compared to any other standard. And the turnaround has to be a factor. Carl, what what do you think about this? Is it, is this fair to players that by winning an international, they might have to turn around and play a first rounder 24 hours later? Well, I mean, this is a problem. We might be slightly overhyping this problem because... This is a problem when there's a Sunday final and then a tournament starting the next day. I guess it's a bigger problem here because Madrid feels it has to get through the first round entirely by the end of the weekend. So even a Saturday final doesn't give you much of a break. But And, and Carl, it's a, it's a slightly bigger problem than that because often the biggest tournaments um, have first round buys. So that wouldn't yeah. have helped Buzarnescu, but it would have probably given Kvitova a free pass in the it, second round. I mean, that, that's what's happening with the men. Like, is Vera's making the trip to Madrid and he doesn't have to play the first round in on the men's side. No, it's a great point. I, I was thinking in terms of, the, the equivalent I was thinking of was most of the top players skip the week before slams. And one of the arguments for doing it is that if you reach the final, you, no one gets a buy at a slam, and you know usually the first round has to be done in the first two days. So you usually will have a Saturday final, but it still can be a tight turnaround, and you get similarly weak fields those weeks. Um, I, I do wish that Madrid and Rome confine themselves to one week, but then again, I've seen enough completely empty stadiums during the week for tournaments to feel some sympathy for why they'd want two weekends for their tournaments. Yeah, I, I, I think it, you kind of get the feel that you deserve in, that, in those cases. Not that you deserve, but you get the field that results when people are making calculations. I could see some of the finalists and prospective finalists making the calculation of, I probably didn't have that high an expected point total. Maybe I would have had to qualify anyway for those premier events. Why not see how I'll do with a much weaker field? albeit you know, not the weakest international field the week before. And you, you see that with slams sometimes. I mean, I can think of some finalists uh, the, in the tournaments the week before who then lost in the first round, and then there was some buzz of like, huh, should they have played that tournament? And I think that buzz ignored that there was a good chance they were going to lose in the first round anyway. And for that player, reaching a final or even winning a title might be a bigger career accomplishment than having a slightly better chance of winning a first rounder at a slam. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, the point totals are a bit easier to remember on the men's side. So thinking in those terms, if you can win a 250, then what is that What is that the equivalent of? Is that like losing in the fourth round at a slam, something like that? Yeah, I think you get 180 for losing in the fourth round, which is not an easy thing to, to, to reach. No, and it's, the, the poster boy for this, in my mind, is Roberto Bautista Agu. He seems like the the 250 winner the week before a slam and maybe I'm just generalizing from one tournament when he did that but I guess he's he's won a lot in um, in Auckland so that's a good example the week before the Australian Open and yeah I mean he, he seems like a decent bet to to make it to the round of 16 but a bad draw means you know he has to play he has to he has to play a top two or top four seed 
in the round of 16, and then it's over for him. So he's not really jeopardizing much by playing the week before and racking up those extra points. So yeah, that, that, that that's a good point. And one of the players I want to talk about, I've mentioned Elise Mertens already, she... I don't know how much she is strategically scheduling, but if she is strategically scheduling, she should get an award for how well she is strategically scheduling. Um, She won this tournament in Rabat, and I mentioned earlier she has now won three titles this year. The, The first one was in Hobart the week before the Australian Open. The second one was in Lugano, um, just a few weeks ago, the beginning of the clay season. And in those three tournaments, she has not played an opponent in the top 50. And she's, I mean, she's the I don't scheduling wanna, goat. She, she is the scheduling goat. Yeah, I, I don't want to take anything away from her because it, it's, it always feels like you're, you're criticizing a little bit or, or making for a backhanded compliment when you talk about weak draws. But at the, I mean, obviously the draw is the same for everybody, and there are 31 other women in each one of these tournaments who weren't able to do the same thing. So, I mean, she's clearly doing something right, and I, I have a lot of respect for her abilities, especially on clay courts. Um, but but the opportunity, like you say, Carl, the, the opportunities are absolutely there, and maybe there are other players who would be better served to, to more aggressively take advantage of them. I mean, I think that it's easy to predict ahead of time that Rabat is not going to have a very strong field. Um, Especially when compares. you do your tournament strength rankings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we, one of the things you've mentioned, Carl, when we've talked about smart scheduling before is how it, it's not super easy ahead of time to know where the strongest fields are going to be. Um, in the case of this last week on the men's tour, Munich was heavily influenced by the fact that Alexander Zverev showed up. But if he had a nagging ankle injury or something, if you take him out of the draw, then Munich doesn't look that much harder than Estoril, for instance. But I think if you look at Prague and Rabat over the years, or their equivalent tournaments, then you can look at Rabat and think, you've got a pretty good chance of winning if, I mean, if you're Elise Mertens or any number of other women. And maybe there's some, some missed opportunities there. Um, but the other, there were three women I wanted to focus on who are, who, who don't get almost any press at all. One of them is Elise Mertens, uh, who we can come back to in a minute. Another one is Buzarnescu, who I've mentioned already, who's up to something like 32 in the rankings. And I, I wonder how many tennis fans on earth could even pick her out of a lineup. She's managed to, to climb the rankings so anonymously. But the third one I want to talk about is Kiki Burtons, who didn't play last week. She's in the draw in Madrid. She won her first round match against Sakari, I think it was. Um, and a friend of the podcast, um, the other Jeff from First Ball In, um, his blog on Tumblr, he made the observation that Kiki Burtons has this outrageous gap between her clay court performance and her hardcore performance. Um, regular readers and listeners might remember that we were talking about how extreme of a clay court preference Dominic Team has, that he's the most specialist clay quarter um, on the men's tour. Kiki Burton's is actually a little bit more of a specialist than Team is in just finding the ratio between his, his, her clay court ELO and her hard court ELO ratings. So she's someone who really likes clay, has had some pretty horrible results on hard courts. And she's got to be considered a dark horse at the French Open, and certainly at Madrid and Rome as well. She's someone who can show up and beat almost anybody on a clay court. And Carl, we've been talking about this for a few days now. Um, 
physically she doesn't profile as you know the the, the speedy counterpunching Sarah Arani style clay quarter, but the results tell a different story. Do you have any theories as to how Burton's gets these results that she does? Well, first, I think that we should update our priors about what makes for a good clay quarter. I mean, these days, I think most people acknowledge that Maria Sharapova plays her best on clay, and she's about the anti-Sarah Irani. And in fact, the two met at a French Open final, and it turned out Sharapova won. Um, Because she's better overall, more than necessarily that she's better on clay. But I think there are lots of different types of players who can thrive on clay, and I think probably a really big factor, sort of as we discussed before, is just how often you play on this stuff and what your attitude is to it. Uh, Burton's, by the way, speaking of scheduling, could probably benefit from scheduling more aggressively on clay because she has this incredibly consistent record of going deep in clay tournaments. But this year she didn't play between the green clay of Charleston and Madrid except for one match in Stuttgart. And... Uh, last year she didn't make it to Europe again until Stuttgart. So it just seems like if, if she knew, once she reads the post about how good her clay elo is versus hard elo, maybe she'll be more aggressive from here on out because this really is her season. This is her opportunity to get points and get and get prize money. I've watched a fair bit of her lately, and one thing, one example of, of something that she's good at that doesn't just immediately translate from someone's size and speed and style is she seems really judicious with the drop shot. The drop shot is an important weapon on clay, but players who are bad either at executing it or at deciding when and how to execute it can cost themselves a lot of points from winning positions. And she seems really good at responding to opponents' drop shots and also at deciding when to use them. And I think that's that's a skill we've complemented in other players. And it, it's not one that, that you sort of would, would obviously know from the one-sentence outline of a, a player's ability. That is an interesting point. And following up on just the, the drop shot specifics is looking at that ratio I was talking about between clay court and hard court ratings, just as a... As a as a quick indicator of how whether a player favors one surface or the other. Burton's is the most extreme of all players on the WTA, but a close second is Lara Ziegemund. And that's a player who's much more known for her drop shot ability. Uh, maybe judicious isn't the first word that comes to mind. <laughs> uh, she can be a little bit profligate with her drop shots, but she's very good at hitting them. Um, probably also pretty good at reading her opponents doing them. Another player who's in the top 10, it looks like, in this clay court to hard court rating is Ange Jabour, the um, Tunisian, I believe. And she's she's kind of a kamikaze drop shotter. Um, and she sometimes gets some good results from it. Sometimes she goes too far, like I believe Ziegemann has from time to time. But it, it is interesting, thinking back to a couple of posts that I wrote, and I don't think we ever discussed on the podcast last fall, um, I, I did a lot of work into the value of, um, of smash skill. And it seems like a, a peripheral part of the game. I mean, you have to be good at it, but it's not going to make that much of a difference. You're not going to hit that many smashes in the course of a match. But it seems like drop shots might be comparable there. And maybe on clay courts where you hit more of them, that maybe it's, it's even a bit more important than a smash. And What I did find out with that flurry of research back last fall was very small differences in, I mean, in anything, 
but a, a difference that could be a, just a, a small difference in smash skill or drop shot skill can have an effect of a few places in the rankings. I mean, if if, if we were to just take a guess that Kiki Burton's is the she's getting the most value from her drop shot of anyone on the women's tour then that might be worth five or ten spots in the rankings uh, compared to a neutral drop shot or a slightly bad drop shot player so it, it it's easy to write those sorts of things off as peripheral skills but when it comes down to the difference between number 30 and number 20 in the rankings uh, then it might be all the difference you need yeah uh, or it's, you know, just the one thing that I, I happen to pick out, you know, I think that it's really hard also, like we're not even gonna get it from charting to measure footwork and I've played on clay and that's been my downfall. I think, I guess it's hard to, to know for sure. Uh, but that, that also feels like something that some players are really good at. And unless you are observing carefully and are kind of an expert in, in footwork, it's it's going to be hard to to know which ones are better at it than others. In fact, it, it could be one of those skills that I, I would classify as something like referee skills. And what I mean by that is you, there's the adage that the best referees are the ones you don't notice. And if you don't notice a player's footwork on clay, then they're probably pretty good at it. Yeah, that's an interesting point as well. And it's, it's a good thing to be thinking about when you are evaluating a player because it's easy to forget that that's something you should even be watching for if you don't have a checklist there. And that's something that I, I think our, our, our someday in the future Hawkeye data revolution might help us address is taking something like speed, let's say, and breaking that down into separate components because it's the same in, in any sport, but in, in tennis, I think it's particularly true that if, if we just put all of the top 20 women in a 100-meter dash or something like that, then we would get some result. We'd find out who the fastest player was, and maybe it's Simona Halep, I don't know. But we would what we would find wouldn't correspond exactly to who has the most effective speed on a tennis court. And part of that might be just reading the game really well. Part of it might be the reaction speed of the first step. The anticipation is is so enormous, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But watching, it's really hard, even if you're watching for anticipation. Like, for instance, people always talk about Anastasia Savastova, someone who reads the game really well. Mm -hmm. And I agree, that sounds right to me. I've probably repeated it as as an unquestioned fact. But at the same time, I've probably watched 20 of her matches in the last year or two and sometimes I specifically watch for signs of this skill in reading the game and if if I had to point to a moment where I could say way to go Anastasia you really read the game well right then I, I don't think I could do it you know it, it, it's the same thing with with all of these anticipation skills I don't want to say they're soft skills because I think at some point we'll be able to measure them and they are consistent repeatable differences between players but as just casual fans watching matches, or even very intent fans watching matches, they're really, really tough to spot. Absolutely. Yeah, and anticipation feels like a, ref- a referee skill to me, too. I think Federer gets a lot of credit, and rightly so, for being one of the best anticipators the sport's seen. Although, how the hell would we rank that? And the, the way it's reflected to me is that Every once in a while, he leans the wrong way, and somebody hits a winner on a ball that didn't look like a winner. 
And those moments are so jarring that they help you realize that most of the time he unwinners those shots by leaning the right way. Or, you know, the, the skill really with leaning is you lean the way that the easier shot is going and that pushes the opponent to take a more difficult shot. So they, you take a ball that was maybe an 80% going to 80% chance of winning the point from that position and you lower it just by making them take the, the tougher shot because they see you leaning. So these, these skills can, can really count. Yeah, absolutely. And there are some ways possibly to, to get at the, the skills with proxies. And one of the things I've been thinking about just having this conversation for the last couple of days is sort of the opposite of, of the aggression indexes that I've written about a little bit. So instead of looking at how aggressive a player is, look at what their effect is on their opponent's stats. So you might get different stats for opponent winner rate and opponent unforced error rate. So I was watching Elise Mertens' final on Saturday. I was watching a replay yesterday. And it, you couldn't really see her driving Tomljanovic crazy, but at the same time, it seemed like she was taking a lot of opportunities out of Tomljanovic's hands. So if if we could look at, say, 10 or 20 Mertens matches and see that she is reducing an, her opponent's winner rates by 10 or 20%, then that would be a significant finding and suggest that either she's... She's playing skillful shots that don't show up in the winner tally, or she's anticipating very well and just taking away those winners in, in the first place. Or maybe she's coaxing more unforced error out of her opponents. That's another thing we could actually create a metric to do. And I don't think that would give us anything conclusive about the anticipation sort of issues, but they could give us a way of identifying the players who might fit into that conversation. And I think Elise Mertens is one of them. She doesn't have any really eye-popping raw skills, but she's a good all-around player. She's very fast. She forces her opponents to work very hard. And even though she hasn't scored any really big upsets yet, um, I, I say that with fingers crossed since she plays Simona Halep tomorrow, uh, she is getting a lot of, of routine wins very consistently. And uh, she's, she's now up to number 16 in the ranking. So it's clearly working for her. She's someone who I think we'll talk about like Sevastova as reading the game really well, if only because we don't quite know what else to say to explain how good she is. Well, it, yeah, it is funny that players who are the most well-rounded are the hardest to talk about as a result. I, I think Karenio Busta, who we mentioned with the men, is another example. And actually, I was while, you, while we were talking about like who are the women who are best on clay versus other surfaces and what, what story can we tell that feels satisfying about why that's true, it made me look up the post that you have already posted, which is about the men. And a lot of the men fit into the description. I mean, Dominique Team and Rafael Nadal, sure, they have some eye-popping skills, but, you know, they're top 10 overall. I think they're top five overall, so no surprise there. The rest really fit your description. They have, they're pretty well-rounded, and they're fast, and they can last long in a match, and they come from countries where they probably grew up playing on this stuff. And some of ELO is about opportunity, and, you know, if you are equally good on clay and if two players are both equally good on clay and hard but one plays a whole lot more on hard he's given himself more of an opportunity or she's given herself more of an opportunity to rise in the hard court rankings from the sort of baseline level everyone starts at which is pretty low so some of this is just these people play a lot on clay um sorry do you want to respond to that i just wanted to finish my point by just saying some of these names that they do fit this this category like simone bolelli albert ramos Federico Del Bonis, 
hard to really point to one shot that defines their game, but they are good all around and, and fast. What, what were you going to say? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good point. It's just the, the sort of, I don't know, the anonymity of being a good all-arounder. Um, and even if you, you're looking, I was thinking about this with regard to prospects as well, that if, going back to a little bit to how we were talking about Francis Tiafo, if you are, I don't know, there aren't, there aren't really scouts in tennis the way there are in team sports, but if you are the equivalent of a tennis scout, let's say for Adidas or something, and you're watching an under 18 or under 16 tournament, you're, you're naturally going to be drawn to the players of really big games. And that's going to lead you to think that um, Feliz Auger Aliasim from Canada is the, the great, the, the future of the game or something. But you're going to, you're going to miss the future, future, well, certainly the future Albert Ramoses, but even maybe the future Diego Schwartzmans or Michael Changs or Hyun Chung's, players like that. And maybe that's just the way it has to be. I mean, maybe those players are never going to be really impressive um, at 16, although Michael Chang's a bad example in that case since he was winning the French Open then. But nowadays, the players aren't going to be doing that kind of stuff at 16. So maybe maybe there's no way around that. But I think that's something we always have to be catching ourselves about. I mean, even, even after years of seeing someone like Nick Kyrgios underperform, I know injuries, whatever, he's still got a lot of potential. But honestly, if you, if you read what people were, have been writing about Nick Kyrgios for probably four years now, you would expect him to have a slam by now. I mean, that's not, that's not fair to Nick, and, and I understand I'm, I'm caricaturing a little bit. You're but not. You're not. A, a big part of that is just that he has this big game. He looks like somebody who can dominate. But as my research and some common sense has shown, like if you don't win very many return points, you're not going to dominate the game of tennis. You might race up the serve speed rankings and the ace percentage rankings, but that's not enough. And I don't know whether fans or commentators can ever learn this lesson that what looks impressive in a young player doesn't correlate that well to who's going to be the, the solid top 10 or top 20 guy five years down the road. Uh, you know, there, I'm there's su- just too many other factors. I'm surprised that you said, you suggested that the smaller game or smaller in the sense of, of power and the, the way we usually think of domination would not succeed young. Because I've heard sometimes the opposite, which is that those players who are really smart and steady are really good young, but then because they they don't have weapons, when their peers do develop those weapons, they get blown off the court by the stronger peers. Well, that's an interesting it's an interesting point, and I I think you're right in one regard that if you looked at junior rankings, you would see a lot of players who who win a lot of matches as 16, 17 year olds, and that doesn't translate into a pro game. Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of that in the last five years or so when there's less of a there's less of a relationship compared to how it used to be between someone who's winning a slam at 17 and then eventually having success as a pro because there's so much of a gap between those two things. But what I was more thinking about, and maybe I didn't make clear, is just not the results so much as the players who people are going to go write an ESPN article about mm-hmm. or sign up as a as a endorser for their shoe brand or something. <laughs> and that's... Uh, it, I don't think you're going to sign someone up just because they're a junior number seven and they win a lot of matches if they look like, I don't know, the next Kimmer Kopians or Philip Peliwo or something to mention a couple of junior slam winners who've 
come to basically nothing at the pro level. But if you have someone who maybe isn't as highly ranked or doesn't win a junior slam, but is hitting monster serves, I don't know, Riley Opelka maybe, then you take notice. You can't ignore Riley Opelka, um, partly because he's 6'10 or whatever. But no matter what his results are, we're going to be talking about Riley Opelka for a while. And we're probably going to be ignoring some players who get better results just because they don't have the extreme game that's easy to imagine translating into something successful, even if there's not a lot of evidence that Opelka's specific version of it is going to translate into something successful. I think it's really, I, I hinted at this before, but I think it's funny that when we talk about domination, we really are talking about one type and that you can physically dominate a match by being faster and having greater endurance. And, and to me, that's just as much domination, but you can't take a five second highlight and show it unless you're showing the other player carted off the court in exhaustion. But, you know, if Diego Schwartzman, and of course we always cite him as, as a favorite, is, is, is dominating Opelka by pushing rallies to go long and then, and then hitting a winner into an open court because Opelka just can't keep up, that is physical domination of a kind. Yeah, I would I would agree, and and I yeah I don't disagree with you. I think the the conventional wisdom disagrees with you, or at least the the un, the unstated conventional wisdom that people act on, even if it's unconscious. Um, it's like translating the the caveman rules of like big and power means domination into a a sport of of rules and and gentility. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's one reason I think that I, I've been drawn to women's tennis over the last few years is there are some players who who are very aggressive and, and can be shown to dominate in that same way. And maybe the game itself isn't much different, but I think the way that we think about it is less dominated by domination, let's say, to coin a not very uh, felicitous phrase. Um you can you can easily imagine a Simona Halep or Agnieszka Radvanska highlight reel that is really impressive and suggests something kind of like domination and is purely based on you know, getting the balls that no one else would get to and running down drop shots, running down lobs, and hitting amazing winners from awkward positions, even if they aren't hit that hard. And that's... You see that a little bit with the men. I mean, I'm thinking back to the Isner-Schwartzman match in Paris last year it was. I, th- I think one of the biggest highlights of the year, or the biggest highlight moments um, of the year was, I think Schwartzman mm. had to run down a lob and hit a tweener past Isner at the net. And, I mean, it, it stretches the definition of the word to call that domination. And it doesn't come up very much in men's highlight reels. Or if it is, it's bracketed by Isner hitting ace after ace after ace. Um but that isn't that isn't what highlight reels usually look like on the women's side, and that's an accurate reflection of the, what the matches are like as well. I mean, they are they are less dominated by just one or two powerful shots, and can be influenced more by someone who's really fast and strategically really sound, and maybe even by Anastasia Savastova's really high level of skill at reading the game. Uh, so it seems like there's more variety there, and maybe maybe I'm caricaturing this myself and maybe there isn't much more variety there but maybe with the men it's it's easier to fall into the sort of caveman trap you're talking about of hit ball really hard win tennis match jeff we're past an hour there's a few things that i want to follow up on including what you just said uh can i do them quickly and then you can respond to them super fast okay first of all i want to check my priors so i looked up 
uh, Burton's and drop shots in the match charting project. And the answer is that she is she hits them frequently. She wins the point 54% of the time, but you never know with those, is she doing it from losing position? So she's actually gaining with the shot. You also don't know the effect that it has on players, uh, even when she doesn't hit it, that they have to protect against it. So I'm going to call that an open question. Also, you, you don't know which matches were chosen, the potential for sampling bias. You do know which, which matches are chosen, but there is that potential. Secondly, we talked about Mertens as potentially being a scheduling goat, and I have a suggestion for a pretty straightforward uh, test of how good someone is at scheduling, and that would be comparing their ELO to their current ranking. And Mertens is actually, and this is an ELO update from a week ago, so this doesn't count for her latest success, that she is 22nd in ELO and 16th in the live rankings and, and the overall rankings. So that certainly suggests that she is somewhat fairly ranked. Uh, may, maybe she hasn't scheduled as well outside the tournament she won with easy draws. Maybe the mandatory scheduling is an issue. Burton's, on the other hand, is all the way down at 40th in the ELO um, and 22nd in the live ranking, which may also be a reflection of if you go really deep in some tournaments, which she does on clay, and then you don't in others, then you are um, going to have a better ranking than your ELO will suggest because you'll have a lot of bad losses mixed in there. Okay, two. Yeah, that, oh, go ahead. That's an interesting, interesting suggestion. I've I've looked at those the same way um, that you're describing, just comparing ELO to actual ratings as a proxy for scheduling skill. The one problem with that that might be part of what you're seeing with Kiki Burton's is. ELO is going to have a, a, a decent component of reflecting more matches that are more right. than 52 weeks old. Right. And I think for Kiki, that's particularly important because I think she had a couple good runs that are more than 52 weeks old, but recent enough that they still have some effect on her rating. Right. So it might be that if, if you created an ELO-like measure that only used the last year's worth of data, which I've actually... I think I wrote up notes for that one day, and I forget whether this was for the same purpose, but I think that would be a really good way of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it doesn't apply to Mertens because she has that um, Australian Open semifinal as well. So it, she hasn't piled up uh, wins just from these internationals she's ch chosen to play, even if she has gotten some pretty good draw luck at the internationals. Last two things. Uh, also trying to look for commonalities in the men who have the best ratio of clay elo to hard elo, the highest ratio, uh, and looking forward to the women's list as well. And basically the commonality is there are no Australians or Americans among them, which is as we'd expect. But also noticed quite a few one-handed backhands in the mix with the men, including Bolelli and Cuevas, Almagro, Leonardo Meyer, Cole Schreiber, Vavrinka. And then it occurred to me, and Feliciano Lopez, and with the women, two women who their ELO rating now is probably not truly a reflection of their ability, but at their peak, Sara Rani and Roberta Vinci, I expect, would, would have been high on that list. Uh, sorry, not Arani. Uh, Vinci and, um, oh, help me out, the beautiful flowing one-hander of the women's tour. I can't believe I can't. Schiavone? Well, Schiavone actually is another great example, but no, I was thinking of the Spaniard. Suarez Navarro, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, of so anyway, that that is a hypothesis, but it could just be that one-handed backhands tend to come from those countries. And then lastly, I had to give Jeff props on Batista Agut because I did not realize this, but for every Australian Open and US Open since the start of 2016, he has entered a tournament the week before, always Auckland for the Australian Open, Winston-Salem for the US Open. Every single time he's made the final and he's only lost one final. So <laughs> you were absolutely right. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I, I think more props are due to Roberto Bautista Agu for winning those matches. Um, the, the one follow-up comment I wanted to make about your point about the Australians and Americans not showing up in that clay court rating is interesting for the women, number six. And again, what we're rating players on is just the ratio of clay court ELO to hard court ELO. Uh, so how much they prefer clay courts. Uh, number six is Sam Stozer. Yeah. I mean, she's French, the results she's back, French Open. Yeah. Yeah, the, the results back it up. It's not that big of a surprise when you think about it. Top spin, forehand, uh, kick serve. Yep. And interestingly, some of the players you mentioned aren't super high, like Suarez Navarro. I, mean, I don't have this list in a very friendly format, so I can't give you the, the ranking, but maybe she's in the top, barely in the top quartile, something like that. And then Irani, I haven't even found yet. So. I'm surprised. Maybe it's because she's just not that good on any surface anymore. Yeah, when I looked at Irani and Vinci, I think they've just fallen off too much to really register. Uh, but Suarez Navarro, I'm a little surprised about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think we, we should wrap it up on that point. Um, so consider this our, our clay court preference episode. Next week when we come back, we'll presumably have a lot to say about Madrid. There's a huge amount of interesting stuff happening there, including a Djokovic-Nishikori first-rounder that is probably going to be done by the time that any of you listen to this podcast. So that will, will shape the draw going forward a little bit. And Jeff, of course that we'll... winner was really surprising, huh? Yeah, the, the, I, was, I was shocked by the result of that match and the number of sets. And I didn't know they could break, do fractional sets. Those break points, man, it's captivating stuff. And just watch that someone's going to retire down three loves and <laughs> prove all of our predictions wrong. Well, that Although would be fra- a fractional number of sets, yeah. It would be a fractional set, that's right. So, yeah, lots to talk about there. Hopefully we'll be discussing the, the victory of Simona Halep in her third consecutive Madrid, as, as well as the victory of Diego Schwartzman, who has been on a bit of losing, losing skid, but beat one of Carl's favorites, Adrian Manorino, uh, before we started recording this today. Everyone go watch that match. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, even, I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, it's got to be good. Yeah, sure, probably. Um, so, Carl, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. And everyone, thank you for listening. Hopefully, we didn't fail on the audio quality um, side, even if we are failing on the con- computer vision scale. So, hopefully, we'll be back in a week with talk about Madrid. Uh, and thank you for listening. We'll see you then.